has been several weeks since we have been in this study, but on Wednesday night, we are conducting a study in prophetic scripture, using the book of Revelation as our base, giving ourselves latitude at times to step out of Revelation, at periods that Revelation does not cover and look at other scriptures. So we spent several weeks in Revelation chapter 1 looking at the introduction and this first vision that John receives of the resurrected Christ. And then we took a couple of weeks and we looked at the phrase, the times of the Gentiles. Times of the Gentiles. Went to Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's vision of that great image. We spent a couple of weeks there. There was another prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. It is a parallel vision as well. covers the same period of time. And I thought that as I was putting all of this together, that we would deal with Revelation Daniel 7 at the same time. But I'm going to set Daniel 7 aside for a little bit, and I think we'll come back to Daniel 7 when we get to Revelation 13. We'll fit it in there. And so we come back to the book of Revelation. We'll be in Revelation for quite a while. And we come to Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, where Christ speaks to seven churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor, and in the passage tonight, Christ speaks to the church at Ephesus. So after his introduction and recounting that first vision of the glorified Christ, the Apostle John gives us seven letters that are written to seven first century churches of Asia Minor. If you go back to chapter 1, the vision of chapter 1 depicts Christ standing in the midst of the church, and the church is represented by seven golden candlesticks. Each church has a representative angel who are then represented as seven stars. And as I said several weeks ago, in fact several months ago, that usually those seven stars or those seven angels are taken as the pastor of each church, but there is nothing in the text to indicate that. If you were to twist my arm, I would say that that is probably true. But I can't say that biblically. And I just want to make that clear when I'm giving you my opinion and when I'm reading the Bible, all right? There are some strong clues that indicate that they could be pastors, but there is nothing in the text that tells us that. And the truth is we don't know who the seven angels are. And the other truth is, is that we're not going to take a whole lot of time fretting over it. We're going to try to focus on what we do know and what we don't know. And what is important is to see Christ standing in the midst of the seven churches, taking his rightful place as the head of the church with the prerogative to judge the churches. As in that judgment must begin at the house of God. So the first judgment in the book of judgment is not against the Gentiles. It's not against Israel. It's not against Antichrist. It is the judgment of the church. So in Revelation 2 and 3, what we have is we have the Lord Jesus dictating a personal letter to seven local churches. These letters are not from John. These letters are from Jesus. In fact, if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, then these words ought to be in red because they are Jesus' last words to the church. Now, there are two things that we need to know about these churches, and I'm not going to take a lot of time introducing and rehashing what everybody has said and read about, written about these churches. But there are two things that, that, that are very important to, to understand. First of all, these are real churches. 
There are seven congregations scattered across Asia Minor uh, in the first century. And in that church history is only less than a century old. Then the history of these churches are not very old as well. Somebody's going to ask, why seven? Why these seven? Why only these seven? And it has been suggested that these seven are marked out because of their location on a major trade route. If you were to trace these cities in the order in which they're given, then it would take you along a major commercial circuit of that day, and possibly that is why. These are real churches. Well, the second thing to, to know about these churches is that they are representative churches. These seven churches are selected to receive these letters, but I am confident that the message is not for these seven churches alone. It is not likely that Christ had something to say to these seven churches, but to none of the other churches of the world. Just like it is not likely that he had a word for the first century church, but he doesn't have a word for the 21st century church. And so each message is addressed particularly to those churches, but generally to all churches. I believe that the message to each church is a message to this church. And if we believe that, then all that we are doing is embarking upon a historical study. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul wrote letters to seven churches. Seven churches, you have to count them. He wrote letters to seven churches. So John gives us letters to seven churches. And when we read the letters that Paul wrote to those seven churches, we don't think that this message is no longer relevant because those churches do not exist. No, those churches are relevant to us. So when we read letters to these seven churches, we don't think that because these churches don't exist, they're no longer relevant. No, these letters are relevant to you and I today. Now, before we begin studying the context of each letter, we have to decide how we are going to interpret these letters. And there are four main interpretations, and some have more weight than others, but I'll give you the four. All right? First of all, there is a historical application. These letters apply to seven literal churches they were originally written to. And as we go through each letter, there, there's going to be things that pertain to that particular church historically and culturally. Let me explain it like this. If someone wrote a letter to our church and asked us about our January Jubilee, we know exactly what he's talking about, right? But if somebody asked a church in Washington about their January Jubilee that doesn't have one, they would be confused. So there are things that he says to the church at Laodicea that wouldn't make any sense to the church at Ephesus. So there is a historical application. Then secondly, some believe that there is a prophetical application. This is the view that takes these churches as an outline of church history. One writer called it history in advance. A panoramic view of the whole of church history written out in advance. And it's a very interesting take, one that I'm not going to bother with on these Wednesday nights. In church history, I've actually taken that as the outline of church history, but I have told the guys in church history I am doing that just to organize our thoughts. It's interesting. There are some parallels. I don't think you can make an exact 
parallel. I don't hold to that very tightly. There is a spiritual application. The spiritual application says that there have always existed in every age churches with the characteristics of these seven churches. And that what these seven churches experience is typical of what other churches can expect to experience. Now you can take that in two ways. One, one, that in every age, every church has existed. There has always been an Orthodox church like Ephesus. There has always been a persecuted church like Smyrna. There has always been, somewhere in the history of the world, a revivalist church like Philadelphia. All of these churches have always existed. And then you can say that in every church there are elements of these seven churches. There are in this church Ephesian members who are orthodox, but their love has cooled off. There are in this church Smyrna members who pay for their devotion with great sacrifice. There are in this church Laodicean members who love pleasure more than they love God. So it's a spiritual application. And then there is a doctrinal application. And one of the difficulties with these seven letters as we go through them is that there are doctrinal statements that seemingly do not fit church age doctrine. And for that reason, a lot of commentators believe that these letters apply doctrinally to believers who will be saved during the tribulation and will have to persevere during that time. And there are statements that we could look at that certainly could be taken that way. I'm interested in what these letters say to us right now. And we can spend a lot of time trying to settle on which dispensation these letters speak to and, and miss what they say to you and I. And so I'm not too sure about tribulation saints. I am pretty sure about me right now. You know, there was a time when I, when I was a younger preacher that I had to know everything. I had to study every little nuance and I would spend days researching every dispensational nugget that I could find and I would come to the pulpit and I would wax eloquent and I would, I would, I would bore people to tears with dry details that meant absolutely nothing to their life. And I am I, I'm dispensational, I believe in rightly dividing the word of truth, but I am more on a practical level right now. And we could, we could dig deep and be so proud of the knowledge we come away with and it never touch our heart. And that's what I want these letters to do. Revelation chapter 2 verse 1. Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. Now thou canst not bear them which are evil, Thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars and hast borne and hast patience and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh what I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Well, the population nearing 300,000, the city of Ephesus was one of the leading cities of the first century. The four chief cities of the known world at that time were in this order, Rome, Alexandria, Antioch, and Ephesus. Some 100, 800 years earlier than the Apostle Paul, a huge harbor had been built on the K-Star River and the city was founded on that harbor. Because it was a man-made harbor and was so massively large, it became a, a marvel of the ancient world. Ships would come in from all over the world, and it was literally called the gateway to Asia. The harbor was so deep and the harbor was so wide that they say that over a hundred cargo or merchant ships could be docked at Ephesus at one time. As you can imagine, that made the city of Ephesus the import and the export capital of Asia. Three major highways crossed the city, which made Ephesus the starting and ending point for a lot of trade. One of the problems they had was that silt that came from upstream the river flowed into that harbor and then it would fill up and it made it difficult for ships to navigate. So over the centuries, different rulers would widen and deepen the harbor and then silt would come and they would fill it up again. And because that harbor had to be rebuilt several times, the city of Ephesus solved their problem by several times by just moving their city inland several miles. In fact, they did it four times. They rebuilt their city, just moving it inland and digging the harbor even wider and even deeper. And finally, they got tired of it in the 14th century. They just abandoned the city. The Apostle Paul sailed into the city in 52 AD. He would have Aquila and Priscilla with him. And when he first sailed into the harbor of the city, he could not have been prepared for the magnificence of the city. There would have been ships from all from all over the world in their harbor unloading their cargo. You would have seen ships flying their flag from Greece and Carthage and Spain and every other part of the world. When he got out on the dock, he would have heard sailors speaking in Greek and Aramaic and Egyptian and all kinds of languages. In a nod to how important in the influence of Ephesus it became the official residence of the proconsul of Rome, even though it was not the capital of Asia. Pergamon was the capital. The city's influence was, was so great that the Roman Senate had actually passed a law. They had a new governor coming in, had to come in at Ephesus. And because it was home to the governor, it was also home to a lot of Roman soldiers and a lot of security. Because the city was always involved in large Massive building programs. There were migrant workers that filled into the city from all over the world to work. And wealthy people need slaves. And there was a very large servant or slave contingency in the city. Paul would have arrived into that harbor and his companions when they left the ship. They would have begun to walk up the city through what was called the harbor gate into the harbor marketplace. That marketplace boasted one of the largest slave markets in the world at that time. In fact, many of the new converts that would come into the church were slaves, which explains why in Ephesians 6, Paul addressed his servants and their masters. Walking through the harbor gate, you would walk up to a boulevard 
that was paved with pure white marble, with marble columns that lined that boulevard, and you would be overwhelmed by the massive buildings and the architecture, and there was no building that was more imposing than the great theater that sat atop a hill overlooking the city. The great theater was the main attraction where the citizens would gather to take in the numerous sporting events that the city offered. When Paul arrived, it had been in existence for over 300 years and 25,000 spectators could gather at one time. The stadium is regularly filled with with chariot races and gladiator fights and to watch wild beasts devour and attack human beings like prisoners and criminals who had been condemned to die. Gladiator fights were nothing more than cold-blooded butchery and murder and it left the sand stained with pools of blood and the city loved it. In fact, just outside the stadium was a graveyard just for gladiators where they buried the gladiators. Whenever a prisoner was condemned to death, they would turn that into entertainment by having him executed in a gladiator fight. It's very likely that that, that this very stadium, many Christians met their death, the empire turning religious persecution into sport. Besides the great theater, there were the comedy theaters that, that were scattered all over the city to feed the appetite for more entertainment. The theater was, was vulgar every Comedian trying to outdo the other in vulgarity. The filthier, the funnier. It was a standard routine to mock um, uh, dignitaries with the foulest of languages and, 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 and sexual induendos and, and crude acts that got, got the biggest laughs. Christians were a favorite target. They would mock them. Sometimes they would bring them on stage and force them to wear a costume or do something that, that violated their conscience. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul said, I think that God had set forth us apostles first as it were appointed to death, for we are made a spectacle to the world. He wrote that from Ephesus, a spectacle to the world. We don't have time to tour the entire city, but the one thing that would stand out more than anything are the many temples to idolatry. Every cult had a following, and every god or goddess had a temple in Ephesus. The cult of Serapis and Isis, which was a Greek um, husband-wife god-goddess team, was very prominent in the city. Cleopatra, the last pharaoh of Egypt, the ruler of Egypt and the seducer of the Romans, imagined herself the high priestess of Isis, and she had built a temple there. Ephesus had two annual carnivals that were really like Mardi Gras for Isis and Serapis. And if that temple does not satisfy the, uh, the idolatry of the hearts, and, and the people of Ephesus could visit one of the many emperor worship temples that were built in the city. Though Ephesus was part of the Roman Empire, they were a free city. That meant that the Roman Empire allowed them to do their own thing as long as they paid tribute to Rome. So in return, Ephesus built temples to the emperors because the emperors imagined themselves to be gods and sometimes ordered subjects to worship them and Ephesus led the way in the religion of emperor worship. Dozens of temples adorned the city and the greatest of all of them was the temple of Diana or the temple of Artemis. In fact, run to Acts chapter 9 with me quickly. Acts chapter 9 
This is the ministry of Paul in Ephesus when he started the church. And there's a riot that takes place there. In Acts 19 and verse 34, but when they knew that he was a Jew, all with one voice about the space of two hours cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, Ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how that the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter, the entire city worshipped Diana the goddess. There was a legend that said that there was an image of Diana that had fallen from heaven just outside the city. This legend became very true in their mind. And that's what the town clerk refers to when he says the image which fell down from Jupiter. In fact, they believed it so much that they built the temple of Diana on that very spot. And every year they would hold a festival in honor of Diana. And the city would swell over a million people coming from all over the world to worship Diana, the goddess of fertility. The temple had been built and it had been destroyed and was being rebuilt at Paul's time. It would take 220 years to build that temple. They said that when you sailed into the harbor, you could see that temple. And they said that the goddess Diana was watching you as you came into the city. There were 33 cities in Asia Minor that had a temple to Diana and none greater than this one. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. The temple to Diana was five times longer and four times wider than this auditorium adorned by 120 marble columns. And the temple of Diana was not just a place of idolatry. It actually served three purposes. For one, it was an asylum for criminals, if a man committed a crime and could get to the temple of Diana, he is free from arrest or prosecution as long as he is in the temple. Of course, that meant that that temple became a notorious collection of criminals. But if you committed a crime and could get to that temple, you are beyond the reach of law. And then that temple was also a bank for kings. Inside that temple, there was a great vault and kings would stored their treasures in the temple of Diana. It seems kind of strange that it would be a safe haven for criminals and a safe haven for king's treasures, but that was the temple of Diana. Most notoriously, it was a den of prostitution. Diana was the goddess of fertility and fornication was part of the perverted worship. They say that at one time, a thousand prostitutes lived in that temple. And at night, they would descend into the city to seduce the men of the city. So the city of Ephesus has a lot of carnal attractions and political and business relations that drew people to that day. But what really put Ephesus on the map was a day in A.D. 52 when a preacher named Paul sailed into the city to preach the gospel. He's at the very end of his second missionary journey. He was on his way to Jerusalem to observe the feast, and he makes a stop at Ephesus. He's, he's, he's welcomed, he's received there, but he doesn't stay long. But he begins his third missionary journey, straightly goes to Ephesus, and ends up staying the greater part of three years there and builds a great church during those three years. When he leaves, he leaves young Timothy as the pastor of that church. He would later write an epistle back to the church, and he would write two letters to that pastor, Timothy. History says that Timothy was martyred in that city. He preached against the pagan festival of Diana. And it was a mob that 
murdered him on the streets of that city. Tradition also says that John replaced Timothy as the pastor of the church towards the end of the first century, remained there until his death. So it is to this church that Christ writes a letter. And the church would have been around 40 to 45 years old by this time, so the first generation has mostly passed away. It is the second generation of believers that he is writing to. And it's a very particularly pointed message. And in this message, I want you to notice just three things. First of all, I want you to notice Christ's examination of the church. He introduces himself as he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And now he turns his attention to the church. And here's what I want you to know. He has conducted an internal audit of the church, and he has uh, 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 estimated the spiritual temperature of the church with a piercing gaze, and he has something to say to this church. You and I thought about that oftentimes with, when, when guests come and visit our church, they see what we present to them. Our music, our preaching, our fellowship, we all love one another. We put our best foot forward. We don't tell guests about any problems that we may face. We may have internal quabbles, but we don't tell guests that we, we put our best foot forward. Now, when somebody joins the church and become more familiar with our church, then they discover we're not actually a perfect church. That they, they learn a little bit more. Maybe it's a financial report. Maybe it's a business meeting. Maybe it's just learning who the gossips are in the church. Well, they learn more about the church. I've been here for 30 years. And I dare say that I know as much, if not more, about this church than anybody here. In fact, I know things about this church that nobody else knows or doesn't know to the detail that I know. But there is one who is walking in the midst that sees beyond what we see. He sees beyond what we advertise and what we broadcast. We Photoshop the photos that we put on the website. We put only the best sermons on the podcast. Everything is not advertised at our church, but Christ sees broader and deeper and farther, and we impress ourselves sometimes with ourselves, but I wonder if Christ is impressed with us. So to each of these seven letters, he starts the same way. I know. He walks into the church and he says, I know. Whether it is the coldness of Ephesus, whether it is the tribulation and the poverty of Smyrna, whether it is the faithfulness of Pergamos or the compromise of Thyatira, whether it is the powerlessness of Sardis or the perseverance of Philadelphia or the lukewarmness of Laodicea, I know and he knows this church. He knows the things that would destroy us. He knows the plans that he has for our church. He knows the burdens that you carry and the heaviness of ministry and he knows your service and he knows your worship and he knows. Notice what he commends in this letter. He commends them for their diligence. Look at verse number two. He says, I know thy works and thy labor. I've often wondered why he said thy works and thy labor because it seems to be the same thing, works and labor. 
But labor has the idea of working to the point of exhaustion. And so Christ looked down on a church that was busy. They worked hard. They volunteered for ministry. They sacrificed their time in the church. In his farewell address to the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, he said, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak. They took it to heart. They are a working church. They're diligent. And then Christ commended them for their devotion and thy patience. Now patience is never just waiting. Patience is perseverance. Patience is often connected to tribulation. It's not growing weary in well-doing. It is the grace to bear well under pressure. They face persecution and they face suffering, but somehow they thrived and fruit grow, grew in their mission field. So he speaks of their devotion. He commends them for their discipline. He says, how thou canst not bear them which are evil. That's a good thing for a church, isn't it? I think about the church at Corinth, how that they tolerated immorality and incest and lawsuits among the brethren and divorce and the abuse of spiritual gifts, but none of that would have been allowed in the church at Ephesus. You see, the church at Ephesus understood that if the world influences the church, then the church will never influence the world. They are committed to the purity of the church. If they saw sin in the body, then they're going to deal with it, deal with it properly. So he speaks of their devotion. And then Christ commends them for their discipline, how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And then he commends them for their discernment. He says, thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars. We can deal with trials and tribulations, but we are not putting up with heretics and false doctrines. Doctrinally pure. It's interesting that in Acts 20, Paul calls for the elders of the church at Ephesus, calls them to Miletus. He gives them the final warning and he says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, and to all, he says, Feed the flock of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And of your own selves shall men arise, speak in perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Ephesus would not allow false teachers in the pulpit. When heretics and charlatans came blowing through, the people would check everything they said with, with Peter and James and John and Paul and what they had been taught. And in a day when many churches were blown away by every wind of doctrine, Ephesus was doctrinally and then Christ commends them in verse 6 for their doctrine. For this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't know exactly who the Nicolaitans were. Some commentators have suggested they were followers of a man named Nicholas, who was one of the seven deacons in Acts chapter 6, I believe it was. The word Nicolaitans comes from two words, means to conquer, and the people, maybe it is people who devise the system to divide the church into two classes, clergy and lady, laity. Whatever they are, they have tried them and said, we hate that doctrine, we're not having it here, and Christ said that I hate it as well. And so Christ commends this church. But then in verse 4, notice what he criticizes. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Because thou hast left thy first love. And what strikes me the most is not the good things that are mentioned, but the lesser thing that is mentioned. 
It is sad that with all the virtues with which to commend this church, the quality they are remembered for most is the fault that they have. You have left your first love. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul wrote a letter to this church. This is the generation before that. And he said, Grace be unto all of them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. But a generation has passed and the fervency of the church has waned cold in succeeding generations. Christ is able to see what they cannot see. And no doubt the church at Ephesus had developed quite a reputation among other churches in the province, but their reputation with Christ is the only thing that mattered. And had you and I visited that church and we had sat in a Sunday service, we had written it up as a model church. It had everything that you could expect in a church and it's devoted in service and their patient and suffering and their pure in doctrine and their orthodox in faith with the all-seeing eyes of the Lord beyond, looks beyond the orthodoxy, looks beyond the doctrine. He sees the motives of their heart because more important than works is motive. More important than patience and intolerance or false doctrine is the very thing that gives those things life and that is love. And the greatest spiritual application of the church's Ephesus is that heads that are filled with fundamentalism without hearts that are filled with love is a recipe for disaster. They are so busy doing things for the Lord that they don't have time to spend with the Lord. They had a program, but they didn't have any passion. But separation is not a substitute for adoration. Labor is not a substitute for love. Purity is not a substitute for passion. It was a church full of Marthas is what it was. Martha is the one that is in the kitchen preparing the meal while Mary is at the feet of Jesus, worshiping Jesus, and one wanted to do something for the Lord, the other just wanted to be with the Lord. And there was nothing wrong with serving. There's nothing wrong with all of those things. But the better thing is what Mary is doing. And if Martha doesn't start doing what Mary is doing, pretty soon Martha won't be doing what Martha is doing. It has to be fueled by and so I say to you tonight that there is nothing greater you can give your Lord than your love. When you give God your ability, you've given him nothing because God can do everything. When you give God your intelligence, you've given him nothing because God knows everything. When you give God your money, you've given him nothing for there is nothing that God does not own. The first commandment is the greatest commandment and that's love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul. Because you can serve without loving, but you can't love without serving. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, was asked once if the greatest requirement for a missionary was to love lost souls. And he said, no. He said, the greatest requirement of a missionary is to love Christ. Because if he loves Christ, he will then love lost souls. And I think we should pause for just a minute. And I think we ought to not think about Ephesus. We ought to think about Victory Baptist Church. And I think that if we're not careful, we'll begin to believe all the accolades that all the guest preachers throw our way when they come our way. And we have a good church. And we have been greatly blessed by the Lord. And it is a good place to raise a family. But be careful that we don't fall into a trap as a church at looking at all of the things that we excel in. 
But may we be open to the discerning eyes of Christ to show us the area that we must pay attention to so that the seeds of corruption are not sown without us even knowing about it. And I honestly think that our greatest danger as a church is that we settle into our purity and our separation and our standards and we're not like the church down the street and our sound doctrine and we know how to conduct a church service, but we have lost our fervency. Our complacency settles in and you can see it in how we respond to the altar or how we don't respond. Our coldness settles in and you see it in spiritless worship. Have we left our first this is a danger, especially for second-generation Christians. You see, in Acts 19, when Paul started that church and people are getting saved, these are new believers. And they make a very radical break from the idolatry and the paganism of Ephesus. In fact, in Acts 19, they have a big bonfire, and they're burning their curious arts and their books and their idols. And, and, and I mean, it, it is a radical amputation. That involves a fervency is what it does. I mean, I mean, these new converts that have such a contrast from their old life to the new life, how easy it is to love the Lord and have a fervency and a fire. But the second generation was raised in church. They don't have the radical break. They don't have the old life to compare because we've always known Christianity and so the appreciation for what they have is not as deep as the, second, as the first generation. Those of us who are the most familiar with the things of Christ are also the most bored with the things of Christ. We take these things for granted and we slip into a lethargy that we're not even aware of. Christ's examination of the church. But then notice, secondly, Christ's expectations of the church. They're not too far gone that they can't come back. And Christ doesn't just diagnose the problem, but he gives the remedy. And the letter is not just cold condemnation. This is your problem and I'm done with you. I'm wiping my that, That's not what it is. But it is a letter of love. Though you have erred, this is an appeal from the heart of Christ to come back. Some people are expert at just picking fault. Just finding criticism, things to criticize. But Christ comes to them with a rebuke of love. Three things. He expects them, first of all, to reflect. Look at verse number 5. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. There's not a person in here who is saved who doesn't know what first love is. First love, first love is that emotion that flooded your heart when you first knew Christ, that overwhelming desire for him. And the first step forward is a step back. We are to compare what we are with what we used to be as a measure of our spiritual progression or our spiritual regression. Do you remember? Remember when you first got saved? Do you remember the tears? Do you remember the fervency? Do you remember the joy? Do you, do you remember the broken heart? Do you remember? That's the first step is to remember. And then secondly, he expects them to repent. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent. Christ's last words to the church is not the Great Commission. His last word to the church is repent. And our coldness and our lack of spiritual fervor is a sin. It is a sin 
to be repented of. It is a sin for me not to love the Lord with all of my heart. It is a sin for me to come to church and go through the emotions and attempt to worship God without my heart being in it. That is a sin. So listen to what Jesus says to the Pharisees and eternalitis. These people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. How easy it is for me to point the finger to the Pharisee when I'm guilty of the exact same thing. So he says, reflect and repent then return. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works. Resolve that you will not stay here. Whatever I have to do, I am going back to that first love. I, I am not, I, I'm not going to fall into this trap to think that cold Christianity is normal Christianity. If it is prayer that I have neglected, I'm going back to it. If it is Bible reading that I've neglected, I'm going back. To, I'm going to return to where I used to be. Christ's expectations of the church. But then notice thirdly, Christ's exhortation to the church. He has for this church a final challenge. It's found in the middle of verse 5. Or else I'll come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou now, some take this as a warning to individuals that you could lose your salvation. There's too many verses on eternal security for me to believe that. And the message is to the church as a whole. It is not an individual who is in danger of losing something, but it is the church as a whole. And the warning is that if you lose your love, you will lose your life. The church was a light in that dark world, but if you lose your worship, you'll lose your testimony for Christ and even your existence as a future church in future generations. By the way, the postscript to the church at Ephesus is that the church failed to heed the exhortation of Christ and they did lose their light. History says that the church was intact for several years and was the seat of Eastern bishops for several centuries. However, in the 5th century, the city began to decline and the Turks overtook it and disbanded the city and deported all the citizens. And now the only reason to go to Ephesus is to see the ruins of that city. The church existed for a long time and no one expects a church to last forever. Well, what about this church? We've had a good run of, what, 47 48 years, how much longer? How much longer? I think the church will be around long enough for me to survive it. But what about for my grandchildren? So there is this final challenge. And then there is a familiar counsel in verse number 7. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. In all seven letters, there's a promise to the, to the overcomer. And this promise has opened up a door of controversy. There is a teaching that divides the body of Christ into two groups or two classes. It teaches that some believers will be victorious and will be part of the overcomers. Or others will be carnal and they are less victorious. And the overcomers will reign with Christ during their tribulation 
and the non-overcoming believers will not reign with Christ during the millennium, during the kingdom. In fact, there was one author in Texas that wrote a book to prove that Christians will actually experience the second death during the millennium. And they would say that's part of the weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth is believers that lose their reign during the judgment seat of Christ. Well, what is an overcomer? That word overcomer is it's found 24 times in, in, in the um, writings of John, only four times in the rest of the Old New Testament. So, so overcomer is a word that John uses. So I'm going to let John define the word quickly. First John chapter 5, just a couple of pages back. First John chapter 5 and verse 4. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? Well, that's the question we're asking. But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. It's the only place in the Bible where you find the question asked and answered. And you can run theological circles around it all night long, but here it is. Here's the question and the answer all in one verse. Every person who is born of God is an overcomer. Not because he's so strong and steadfast, but because he has faith. Faith in who? He believed that Jesus is the Son of God. Here is a believer, and by his union with Christ, he shares in the victory Christ has won over the world. Back to chapter 4, chapter 4 and verse number 4. Ye are of God little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Your overcoming is not based on how you have achieved. It is based on what you have believed. You have believed in Jesus Christ. One other passage quickly, Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21 and verse number 7. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he should be my son, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. This is the second death. There are only two classes of people in Revelation chapter 21. There are believers, that's verse 3 through 7, and there is the unbeliever in verse number 8. There is no mention of a third group of non-overcoming believers. There are those who have overcome and they inherit all things, and then there is the unbeliever who is cast into the lake of fire. And I say this in closing, we read these promises as a reverse threat. We read it in the negative. If you don't overcome, if you don't persevere, then you don't share in these promises. But it is a promise that heaven awaits. In Revelation 2.11, the paradise of God is heaven. And for the believer in Ephesus or the believer in Milton, stay faithful and stay close to Jesus because heaven is waiting for us. Now, internalize the message. Forget Ephesus. Think you, think me. Has love for Christ grown cold? Has fervency waned? And only you can answer that question. Only you can. But if it has, it is a sin that must be repented Don't descend into a dead orthodoxy where you become nothing more than a Pharisee with no love in your heart for Christ. Let's bow our heads tonight, shall we? Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Marcy, if you'd come and play softly.